If you've uh, traveled internationally, you know that um, when you go into a new country, they ask you the question, what do you declare? What are you declaring as you enter into this country that this belongs to you? And there's a reason for that. They want to know the things that you're bringing into said country. So if you return back to the United States and you bought a bunch of goods and things in another country, they want to know what those things are, maybe to tax you for those things if you haven't been taxed, but also to know if you're bringing like a foreign currency or declaring something that was belonged over here but now belongs over here because you're bringing it into this territory. This is mine, you're declaring. I am bringing this into this new place. As we leave Romans 3 and 4 and come into Romans 5, Paul is reminding this church that God has made a declaration, and that declaration has transferred these people of God into a positional relationship with him where they belong to him. And it is a declaration. You have been justified, Paul says. It is an accomplished and finished condition. It's not something in process. It's been declared. You used to belong here, but now you belong here. You used to be trying to justify yourself in your unrighteousness, but now by faith you are justified in the righteousness of God. And so the problem of sin has been resolved by the death of Christ. It has been rectified, Paul has been saying, and just like your father Abraham, you stand in new relationship to God. It has been declared. You and I have been made new. We are a people of faith. We used to be under the banner of sin, death and the devil, but now we're under a different banner, namely the resurrection of Jesus the Christ, the one who sees us As good as dead, he is the one who gives life to the dead. And all of this, Paul is trying to emphasize and will continue to emphasize through the rest of the book, but particularly in 5 through 8, that this is a gift that you receive by faith. This is the starting point for us, Paul says. Bart, uh, the theologian, says it like this. As far as we can see, our hands are empty, We resemble grass growing on the summit of some steep ravine where no other vegetation can live. Below in the valleys rise the mighty oaks whose roots are buried in rich soil. We, however, we who have been justified by faith, we are weak, tiny plants, hardly visible, unprotected from the wind and the storm, almost withered away, almost without roots, but yet... The topmost branches of the oak trees lie still wrapped in darkness. The light only catches us in the early morning, and we see then what none other can see. We see the sun of the coming day, and we cry out, Welcome, come, Lord. What Bart is saying is our very weakness is what makes us worthy of the gift of justification. We are righteous in this weakness. We are first because we are last. We grow because we wither away. We are great because we are little. We have been justified. And this gift brings all the other gifts. Now, there's an illustration for this. Like I don't know if you remember the Kodak commercials where they said Kodak is a gift 
that keeps on giving. Now, we use that phrase all over. I don't know if that phrase was used before Kodak, but Kodak encapsulated that phrase and used it in a very uh, strong advertising campaign and saying, the gift of Kodak is a gift that keeps on giving. How? Why? Well, it helps us remember things in the past and brings feelings of joy from that past event into the present. Justification is such a gift. It's a gift that brings with it more gifts. It's a gift that keeps on giving. And this is what Paul is about to embark upon here in Romans 5. This text acts as a bridge between chapters 1 to 3, where Paul shows us all the ways human beings cannot bring about righteousness, all the ways we can't make things right, all the ways we fail to justify ourselves, the way we should tire of such exploits, and yet we don't. But God still moves and acts. And through Jesus, we are justified. So Jesus, Paul says, is our only boast. The law can't bring it. Just look at Abraham. He was justified by faith. No merit in his deeds. He was dead, wandering bones. And yet God visited him in that condition and gave him a promise apart from the works of the law. And he believed God and it was justified. And he was justified. And so now Paul will unpack what this rectification, this justified life in Christ looks like in chapters 5 through 8. And Romans 5 through 8 is, if not one of the most uh, beautiful and impressive sections of Scripture, maybe the most impressive section of Scripture. And Paul begins this by saying, a justified life in Christ looks like this. Four points today. One, you have peace with God. Two, you have access to God. Three, you can boast in the hope of the glory of God. And that means four, you can boast even in tribulation. First, peace with God. Paul says here, we have peace with God because we are justified. We're no longer under wrath, but under peace. Unless we are righteous before God... We are at enmity with God, a state of being actively opposed and hostile towards God and God towards us. There is distance between us and God, and the fear of God has been removed, and at, at any increasing distance, we're negligent to it. That's what it means to be at enmity with God, under wrath. But Paul says, you're not under wrath anymore, you're under peace. We have been made righteous, so we have peace with God. Peace is the proper ordering of the relationship between man as man with God as God. It is an indicative. We have peace. The peace comes from God. We can't bring it or make peace. Calvin says peace with God is contrasted with every form of an intoxicated security of the flesh. What Calvin is saying is, It is more than a pleasurable feeling or a sensation of happiness or anything that we can accomplish in and of our fleshly existence. It is something given to us and achieved for us by God and God alone. In the ancient world, there was this phrase called uh, ataraxia. And there's a story told by the historian uh, Laertes uh, about an ancient Greek philosopher named Pyro and his amazing ability to remain calm even when in great danger. 
The philosopher was traveling on a ship when a storm struck. His fellow passengers were terrified that the ship might wreck in the storm as it was tossed up to and fro by enormous waves. Pyro, however, remained calm, serene. He pointed to a little pig on the ship that was eating away and said that the wise man ought to repose in just such a state of freedom from disturbance. The pig was in just as much danger as its fellow passengers, but ate in its blissful ignorance. Pyro thought that a man would be wise to be as serene as the pig was, since everybody on board the ship had no more control over the situation than the pig had. The state of mind Pyro is referring to is ataraxia, a crucial concept that would develop in ancient Greek philosophy and even translate to us in the modern world. The the word translates to unperturbed, literally without mental trouble. The word is central to skepticism, epicureanism, and stoicism. Each of these philosophies had their own approach to achieving ataraxia, serenity in the face of danger, unfazed, unperturbed. Remember, Paul is writing into such a world where those philosophical things are very much the warp and woof of what it means to be a Roman. Now, our world believes similarly to the ancients. The world directs us to say peace, peace, where there is no peace, grounded in ourselves and our experiences and our efforts to achieve, to calm ourselves, to achieve some inner state of chi and no peace. Now, peace peace here is neither of those things. It's neither the absence of adversity or the euphoria or state of mind that comes from it. It's not based in any sort of way on our subjective experience, but it's based on the objective work by God outside of us. Why is this difficult for us? Peace established by God. It is the character of our new relationships uh, to him. So why is it hard? Well, for one... The bitter conflict of flesh and spirit remain, even after we've been declared justified by God, that bitter conflict of our flesh with the spirit remains an intense, as intense as it was before. We don't have inner chi. We don't have ataraxia because man remains man and God remains God. And into this space, we are called to wait and to hope, to wait and to hope upon God alone a peace found outside of us and our experience. So that makes it hard. We have been reconciled. There's no more hostility, Paul says. The other thing that makes it hard, how do we live into such an announcement? Do we live as reconciled as, or do we live as hostile? Like when I sense hostility, my nature is to go around and try to make peace. With Danette, with my kids, with some of you. I don't like to be the, there, there to be this unsettling, this my inner chi violated. And my anxiety at relationship unsettled demands some things for me so that I might feel like I am at peace. And I can even take this with, to my relationship with God. It looks like me doing something to be reconciled or to feel reconciled. So when I sin, I want to feel reconciled to God, so I go and do something to make me feel it. Do some kind of 
thing that makes me feel like I'm holy or better or approving something that God would be approved of. Instead of looking to the objective work of Christ, I have peace with God, Paul says. Instead, I go about trying to make peace. This is a symptom of what Paul's been talking about, our universal tendency to justify ourselves, to work and to merit, to hammer all the nails of our subjective experiences so they measure up to the objective one. Do you do things like this with God? The judge has declared us righteous. We prisoners have been released into a life of freedom. We have been adopted into a new family. The judge has declared it. Estranged and fatherless, we've now been brought into a family and given a father, and there's nothing that we can do to change that status. The gavel has been cracked down. And we have all of this through our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, as we look to the crucified and risen Lord, we encounter the way God has moved towards us and taken away all the distance, all the hostility. He has united us to his son. And it is not up to us or our experiences. We want to always move there, but faith rests elsewhere, namely onto Christ, through whom we have been reconciled and given peace with God. We are in Christ, and in Christ we are justified, declared righteous with him, and our sin is nailed to the cross with him in his body. And so, Paul says, we have peace with God. So this peace makes a way for us. We now have, point two, access. We used to not have access. Now, through Jesus, we have access to God. This comes from God by faith. In this God who justifies, we currently stand in the state of access. To use that adoption metaphor, we were cut off from a relationship to our father, but now adopted, we can run into his arms. We can sit in his lap. We can be tickled and can laugh. The king of the universe has invited us into his throne room and given us his ear. This access is in the perfect tense which means that the effect began in the past, like that Kodak picture, and continues on into our present. We stand in this state. It is our solid footing. Our feet have been fastened in the now because of the objective past work of Jesus. We have access to God. Now think about Paul. Think about Paul as Saul. Saul, blind on the road to Damascus. The course of his life totally broken. Only then, only when he is made blind by the glory of God in that moment, by the paradox of grace, when he realizes just how unworthy, how destructive he has been of God, to God in his ways, that the destructive holiness of God visits him. Bart says, the, the, the holy, destructive holiness of God visited him and became real to him when mercy embraced him. And this is now possessed him. It is not I who lives, Paul says, but Christ who lives in me. This is the grace in which, Paul says, he stands. Not the, the past things of his past story in his previous life that has been done away with in Christ. And a door has been opened for him by grace, and it has been spoken over his life. I think about that scene in 
Lord of the Rings, where they're trying to get into the mountain. There's a doorway there. They can't quite get into it. And then they read the phrase in Elvish, speak friend to the door, and the door will open. That's exactly what's happened to us. Jesus has come and spoken friend for us, on our behalf, over us, and it has given us access to God. Now, what unsettles this for you? When do you think access has been denied? What are the things in your life that creep up into your life, into your thought process, into the ways that you think about your relationship with God that says, no, I don't have access to God now. I've done things that block off that access to God. I've circumnavigated God's process, and instead of having been spoken friend over, I am back to being spoken enemy over. Justification brings access to God. You have been called friend. You've been called son, daughter. You've been invited into his life. You can barge in, by the way, at all hours. You can wrangle the ear of your kingly father in all manner of ways. Just as you groan to your parent about the ways your life is not working out, you can groan in the same way to your heavenly father. You have access to this God. Come, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. This morning... How do you need to rush into him? You have access to him. By faith, you stand in grace. Friend has been spoken over you. So justification is a vehicle that brings you peace with God. It's a vehicle that brings you access to God. So we can boast. So we can rejoice, point three. This is a Pauline term. He uses it 55 times in his writings. The word is found in only four other places in the New Testament. For Paul, boasting is, in the negative, pride, our independence from God. But in the positive, the boast is in God. Because we have been justified by faith, Paul says we can boast, we can rejoice. Here, Paul gives two things to boast about. The hope of the glory of God and the tribulations or sufferings that produce that hope. Paul says, rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Boast in it. Make it your boast. Make it the thing that you bank on, the thing that your happiness is derivative from. What will God's glory do? If Ichabod is God's glory removed, what is God's glory recognized, realized? Overcome in total... Sin and death. Sin and death has been overcome in total. That's what God's glory looks like. We will be like him. Our mortality swallowed up in immortality. Our sin in the now fully wiped away in the not yet. The effects of all of our sin undone. All those things that you regret. All the things that wake you up in the middle of the night, all the things that keep you working in the middle of the day, all those things will be wiped away. Imagine what it might look like to live without any kind of regret. Now, that's a statement, by the way, that our world likes to throw at us. Live life with no regrets. 
an existential maxim. We stare into the abyss of nothingness. We can't be sure that any of these sufferings have any meaning. So live life with no regrets. You only have one life that you can live. That's not what God is talking about, and that's not what Paul is pointing us to when he says we can boast in the hope of the glory of God. We can boast in the reality that there is no more regrets, that we've been fully justified, that we've been made right, and our world in Christ will be set to rights. All the horrible offenses done to you or that you have done will be swallowed up both in the body of Christ and the renewal of all things. It is individual and cosmic that Paul says why we can boast. Our boast is there. We rejoice in the future reality. But here, this, right now, in this right now moment, when we're hoping, when we're boasting in the hope of that, when we're hoping it for one day where we can live a life of no regrets, into this moment, we have no authority to beget that life. We have no ability to make that future hope realized now. Bart will say, faith has no power of anticipation. It travels by no shortcut to that future eternity which lies beyond us. We have no secret treasure by which we can avoid the tension of faith or blot out the not yet which contends us. We cannot transform hope and deny it by making it a present reality. We cannot identify the new man with the old, except insofar there is set between them a predicate of faith. And unless we are advancing in faith through the dreadful valley of death, we glory because we are aware of the final consummation. We know it is what is to come, but we can never reckon it as our current possession, never appeal to it, as our right of experience. I want to see it for a second. Because I want the tension between the glory or the hope of glory and my present non-glory circumstances to be over, done away with. I do hope in this glory of God in future, but I also want to like lasso that hope and pull that hope into the now so I can be done with hoping and possess it today. So the anxieties of moments in pain, in suffering, in loss, what I want is that future thing now. And when I don't get it, I become surly towards God. I want the tension done away with. My friend Chris, who's part of my pastor's group this morning, yesterday, had to, wa- uh, had to meet up with his assistant pastor's wife and kids as they're coming back from a camping trip to tell his wife that her husband had killed himself, another pastor of the church where he works. When I think about another round potentially of viruses or the threat of any kind of uncertainties that that might provide, or I think about any circumstantial thing that I might be going through, It's all those kind of moments that make me want to lasso that hope and pull it into the future. But 
There is no such thing. When we hope in the glory of God, it is exactly that. It is hope. It is not the present thing. I cannot realize it in and of myself, and neither can you. No matter what you might do to escape that notion that that hope is bent up on something outside of you, that consummation comes later, that no regrets can't really happen now in and of yourself. And we have to live into that tension. Because you're justified, that tension isn't removed. Rather, it means that in spite of that tension, you can advance and live a justified life by marching repeatedly through the dreadful valley of death. Now, don't miss that. Because we live in a world that in every sort of way tries to deny death, to keep it at arm's length, to push it away, to get it out of the recesses of our mind, to not dwell on it because that's morbid. Death is a horrible thing that we don't want anything to touch or to do with. But Paul calls us to live into the tension of the hope of the glory of God, that that is our boast even in the now, as we advance through the dreadful valley of death. The Lutherans call this a theology of glory versus a theology of the cross. Our hope is just that hope. It's future. It is in something tangible and objective. The glory of God, in this sense, we have a savior, a king, a friend who has gone before us, walked all the way through the dreadful valley and was raised on the other side. His life means there is the glory of God. The glory of God is not Ichabod. That's not the story of our lives because Christ has advanced through the dreadful valley of death. Ichabod is not the story we affix to our life. Instead, it is the hope of the glory of God that we will be like him. It doesn't mean that we won't taste death. We taste it. All our dustiness sits in our mouth and wrangles around there like sawdust all our days. We are always vulnerable, so vulnerable. And every advance in this life is not achieved by avoiding crosses and lassoing glory into the now. It is always trudging along a trail of tears. Don't miss this, please. Paul is saying our hope of glory remakes us to also then hope and boast in suffering. We can boast in suffering. Paul says suffering produces endurance, endurance character, and character hope. Because faith is centered on God, its affirmation can be obtained in spite of our circumstances. The way we are deprived of the glory of God when life is not smooth, when the wind is not at our back, when there's tribulation and calamity, and it affects us both on the outside and on the inside, Paul will say in 2 Corinthians that the energy of death is always at work as we are pressed in, hemmed in by it. And when we suffer, the fear is we're going to die. We will be undone. But justification because we've been united to Christ, teaches us that suffering is good, not that it's good, sorry, but rather that when we suffer as those in union with Christ, 
We're not alone in our suffering. But Christ is with us. And we are with Christ, who suffered in all ways as the incarnate Son of God. We are bonded to him in suffering. Now, the doctrine of union with Christ can get heavy real fast. It is both basic and yet one of the most intricate and profound teachings of Christian faith. It literally changes everything when it's grasp. Friends, the abuse that you endure, where you felt utterly alone and no one can understand, Jesus is quite literally the only person who can say in fullness, I understand. Not only because he, he, he created you, but because he endured it with his spirit as the incarnate Christ. He was betrayed by his close friend, closest friends, handed over by religious authorities to be abused and stripped naked, ashamed, put on public display in order to be shamed by the masses as they beheld his exposed and brutalized body. When such evil is done to us, we and Christ begin to have more in common. Our bond with him is deeply realized. Our love and understanding of him grows as we grow. In our understanding of what he endured for us, in our greatest suffering, Christ, the suffering servant, becomes closer to us. Now, in all these moments, we're tempted to put it away, to do that by ataraxia, to get back to our inner peace, to stuff the feelings away, to eliminate our desires, to control our fears, to find comforts and distractions or pleasures. It's so much easier than boasting in our sufferings and in rejoicing in tribulation. Now, don't miss this. Evil is removed by the word of justification with which God justifies the believer and appoints him as an inheritor of the kingdom. You are a son and daughter of the king. And that is perceived by faith. Faith with, which presses onward and leads to sight does not wait in order for it, might be, in order for it to be believed. It believes in the midst of persecution. It believes in the midst of tribulation. It believes in the midst. Not when the edges have been blunted off. Not when the means of enduring have been found. Not because happiness has been restored to you. In the peace of God, there is sighing and groaning and weakness. These words, the ability to sigh and groan and be weak, these words are full of longing. Daddy, Father, Paul will say in chapter 8, that cry is heard because they are children of God. We don't need to be strong, for God permitted his son to be submerged in the misery of the cross. There is suffering, there is sinking, there is feeling lost, there's being torn apart in the peace of God. Abraham knew this, walking Isaac up the hill. And yet there is hope. No one will ever be let go. In the peace of God, there is even room for what the world calls unbelief. Jesus on the cross, crying out in the midst of the onslaught of death and hell, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is room for such cries in God. Because peace has been made by God. And your hope is banked upon in God. And redemption occurs in the midst of upheaval, amid chaos, in the 
chaos of unredeemed humanity, in this place, that's where redemption happens. That is why we have hope with our friends who have not yet embraced this hope to share the message of our hope, the hope that we have. And to boast, even in the Ichabod moments of life where it feels like the glory of God is gone, where we bear the heavy curse for our, in our createdness. In those moments, he is making us like the Christ who suffers. And so Paul says, suffering produces endurance. That word, to remain under. It is staying power. Suffering produces this ability to remain under, to persevere in your faith. Endurance produces character, the quality of being approved after testing. My kids have all gone through this process of probationary licenses where they have to ride and drive with us and hear all of our, oh, and, uh, and all that. Where we're stepping on fake, fake brakes and driving pretend steering wheels. In those moments, they have to go through those moments to be proven. And what Paul is saying, endurance, as we suffer and endure, it produces this quality of being approved after testing. And the contrast is a wordplay of between this and a depraved mind that leads to wrath, which he presents earlier in chapter 1. Paul is making these two words that sound very much alike in Greek. He is saying that the quality of being approved after testing, this word character, sounds and looks like the word of a depraved mind that leads to wrath versus this mature character which leads to salvation. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And there's a God word lean to this, remember. This isn't something that you do. This is something that God gives. As you enact that with faith, it produces these things in you by the Spirit. Character then produces hope. That hope is living in accordance with the promise. Promise, future, dictating now. No lassoing the future into the present other than not theology of glory, but theology of cross. So I can walk through the dreadful valley of death with hope in the promise. What's most true in this moment is not me walking through the dreadful valley of death. What's most true in this moment is I will be raised with Christ. I will be seated in the heavenlies with God. That is my proper orientation to the now. My life is hidden with Christ. In God. In these moments where suffering becomes the action of God, the obstacles becoming the stones on the path to the victory of life, demolition and deconstruction becomes edification, disappointment becomes the energetic hope, and eager anticipation for the Lord to return, where prisoners are suddenly transformed into watchmen on the walls pointing out all the ways darkness is changing to the light. Look, it's a sign, God is on the move. That's what we're called to do. We are prisoners who have been transformed into watchmen on the walls. So when suffering and evil happen, we can enter into that fully. We can lament that that is the reality of living in this moment, the dreadful valley of death. We don't have to push it away. We don't have to become Stoics or Epicureans or Cynics. We can walk that path with our neighbor. We can walk that path with our spouse. We can walk that path with our church. And that is our path. We share it together. When one of us suffers, we all suffer in 
Christ. And those moments become things which make us long for, hope for, the future. And so we rejoice in our sufferings. I remember as a kid, the thought of Jesus' return wasn't just fearful because I had all sorts of rapture things tied up in that, but also like I had so much life to live. I've had these conversations with my own children, the desires that they want to experience in this life, yet as I near 50, that has begun to change. Maranatha has become my cry. Come, Lord Jesus. The suffering is doing its work in me to long for what has been promised. This is what God does, not just the age of life, but suffering attaches us to the reality that we are dust. It doesn't just do that. Paul ends this by saying, hope does not put us to shame. Hope does not disappoint. And this is the rub, the shame of suffering. Right? Job knows this. Job suffers, and he knows the shame of suffering. What's the accusation of Job in his suffering? He did something to deserve it. He brought it on himself. His friends parrot that news back to him. We know it too. When we suffer, we are exposed. Death is shameful. Alone, we leave this world. Our bodies do fail. And somehow, even though it's all of our fate, we are ashamed of that. And the same is true, by the way, that those who just say, well, death is just the circle of life, who somehow try to strip death of that shame. The the shame of it is real. We do try to celebrate life and pretend death is not the thing. But death is shameful. We know it. We are all laid bare in that moment, in every moment that reeks of death. It smacks its lips at the dissolution of our flesh, and it shames us. We are embarrassed by our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities and all the ways we somehow try to cope with it by denying death. But here Paul says you can rejoice in your sufferings and hope in it in spite of what you see because this hope will not put you to shame. Because you will not die, you will live. John Dean's poem, The Winter in Meth, says, The dead, gone silent in their graves, have learned the truth about resurrection. And that way, hope does not disappoint. This is the same word Paul uses, by the way, in chapter 1, when he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. This hope is not empty fantasy. The prospect is a guarantee, and we're tempered by adversity to believe it. In other words, it's only through death that there can be resurrection. And this is how we can glory in suffering because God will raise us to new life in Christ. The hope may look full of all sorts of shame, but in the end, we will be the shoots on the grass on the craggy hills seeing the coming of the sun. He will greet us in that moment when we leave this life and enter into the next. That's the promise of resurrection, and it won't disappoint. In the deepest horrors of death, we are met 
in that moment with the promise of ultimate salvation, the impossibility, Paul says, of the love of God. A love that reaches through sin and death and brings life. Because here, Paul says, God's spirit sheds abroad God's love into our hearts. When we're brought to those places at the end of ourselves, where all we can do is hope and hope that we will not be put to shame. It is in these moments that God goes all Jackson Pollock on us. He takes out the paint and just starts shredding it above on our hearts. The love of God is just shed on our hearts all across them in an extravagant, poured-out way. The word Greek is actually the word we use for a deep torrential rainfall, the gushing out of God's love applied to our hearts by his spirit. This love is agapeo. It originates from God, independent of merit. God's love gives that which its object does not possess in itself, and it is transforming power and the reason for its own existence. And it is by the spirit that we know this love. So here Paul is again stoking the fire of the activity of the Godhead. This is not something you produce, friends. It is given to you as a gift. You are all a human heart that God loves. And we can never rest this love onto ourselves and make it our possession. We can only receive it afresh. And the love of God is God's work. It is possible, as Paul will say next week, because God first loved us. This insight into the invisible, which is ours, because it is not ours, is the anchor of our hope. It's not ours in that we do it. It's ours in that it's given to us. Love is that which endures in our endurance. Love is that which is poured out when we have character, Love is the hope in our hope. By hope, we glory even in tribulation. By its power, we have peace with God. And by it, we are what we are not, new men and women justified by God. After all of this, how can we ever imagine that the hope of the glory of God could possibly put us to shame? Let's pray. God, we ask that you would spread that abroad on our hearts this morning, your love. And because of your love, we will never be put to shame. Because you have justified us in your son, we are a people who hope. That past reality has been placed upon us in the present, and it is our hope for the future. And we pray that we would live as those who are justified. In the tension of this current moment, that you would meet us in our suffering with hope. You would meet us in every little tribulation with promise. And that through that, God, you would produce in us an endurance that is able to walk through the valley of the shadow of death time and time again and hope. But that testing would make us go back to it again and again and again. You have proven yourself, God. I can walk through this trial again because you 
I've proven yourself to be faithful. Just like you were faithful then, you'll be faithful now. Just like you will be faithful later, you will be faithful now. Help us, God, to walk that path, knowing that your Son has gone with us now and before us. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.